Hello there. You are listening to this because you saw the title that we're continuing our hermeneutics series, Ken and I, here on the Do Theology podcast. And you willingly have entered into an episode where we are going to be engaging in conversation with a scholar, a professor, a theologian, an academic man, a doctor, on the topic of how we read things. So I'm just taking this moment here at the beginning to help you set your expectations. <laughs> um, this isn't an easy conversation to uh, digest. That's kind of a gross metaphor. This isn't a, uh, a super simple to understand concept. This is um, challenging in a lot of ways to start to wrap your mind around how the Bible fits together and how we interpret that. It's difficult, really, really tough. So um, here's my advice. Go slow. If you listen to this at one point, whatever speed, just put it on one, one time speed. Listen twice. It's a 30-minute episode. You'll need to listen twice. Um, and then send us your questions. I'm sure you're going to have questions. Send them to us. You can email them at show at dotheology.com or you can connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. Kind of starting slow here so you can get in the mode of going slow. Okay, thanks for listening. Enjoy the conversation with Dr. Daryl Bach. Neither Bethel nor Hillsong meet the biblical definition of a true church. Did you know that Jesus was born again? Is his view heretical? If it isn't, then there's no such thing as heresy. It's not just a black and white issue. There's an issue, there's a question of moderation and how damaging and how harmful things are. Not every act of divine revelation is equal in authority. Angelic forces, angelic reinforcement. I mean, it's, it's hard to even respond to that, isn't it? It's, it's mind-numbing, it's blasphemous. When the apostles use the word atonement, they do not depict an angry God. It's cryptic. It's watered down. It has nothing to do with the judicial aspect of the Christian gospel. The most important of all doctrines is that the Bible is the word of God. They have different ideas than you do. You don't have to automatically kick them out of the kingdom. Our guest today is the Executive Director of Cultural Engagement and Senior Research Professor of New Testament Studies at Dallas Theological Seminary. He has authored, edited, or otherwise contributed to many books and articles, including highly respected commentaries on Luke and Acts and books defending the historicity of the Gospels. A gentleman and a scholar, Daryl Bach, we welcome you to the podcast today. Uh, it's good to be with you, and I'm looking forward to this. Daryl, in many ways, your name is kind of become synonymous with uh, progressive dispensationalism. You had that book you wrote with Craig Blazing about 30 years ago that's had a considerable influence. Uh, 
and for those who are listening, we are going to link in our uh, description today an interview that Dr. Bach did with Nicholas Noyola on his YouTube channel. So you can watch that if you want to get a overview of what progressive dispensationalism is. Today, we're really going to be focusing more on the hermeneutics uh, behind the things. Um, but in that book, if you look at the table of contents and see the attributions of who's responsible for which sections, the two chapters that you are attributed to there, they both have to do with hermeneutics. So can you just uh, explain for us, help us understand how important hermeneutics is, and just describe a little bit of how this project came together? Well, um, hermeneutics is basically the process of interpretation, which means understanding what you're reading and also how uh, how who you are impacts what you read and what you see. And so one of the chapters deals with what you're pursuing from the text. The other is dealing with the lens and the impact of the lens with which you read scripture and how that impacts what you see. Uh, and that conversation is important because obviously in Christianity, in case you haven't noticed, everyone doesn't exactly agree about everything. Um, they, we, we, what? There are there are family discussions going on all the time. So how can people who have a high regard for the text, and let's assume that, and even still we've got the issue, who have a high regard can, for the text can read the same text and think very different things. Hmm. And so part of, her, part of the technical work of hermeneutics is to explain the dynamics that not only asks the question, how should we read a text, but why is it when we read a text, we end up with differences of interpretation and that kind of thing. So that's what we're, that's what we're wrestling with. And so it was important in this particular project dealing with eschatology, where in case you haven't noticed, Christians don't actually agree on eschatology <laughs> either, um, to sit down and have a conversation about, about what produces those differences, how to think about them, how severe are those differences how crucial are those differences, that kind of thing. So that's what I'm trying to do in the chapter. At chapters, actually, there are two of them. Yeah, and that's, we really appreciate those those chapters because hermeneutics, you know, we're, we're in the midst of a series right now on hermeneutics on our YouTube channel, just kind of working through those things with our podcast. And our podcast is really based on a chart that separates doctrine into three categories, primary, secondary, and doubtful. For those listening, that chart is available at dotheology.com slash chart. And in the book, Progressive Dispensationalism, you sketch out a similar approach on page 70, and as we, when we approach this, uh, we make it clear on our chart that the issue of hermeneutics is what separates primary from secondary doctrine. Could you just help us ex uh, understand and explain a little bit of how our, one's hermeneutics, that's what's going to determine where someone is going to land on non-primary issues? Well, it's probably been 15 years since I looked at page 70, so I'm not necessarily <laughs> sure what you're alluding to, but uh, let, me, let me try. What I try and tell people is, you need to distinguish um, the, the, the level of importance of what it is that you're looking at as you're doing your interpretation. Um, there are reasons for differences. And, and, and so the chart goes like this, mine is a fourfold. It's not based on content. It's based on the judgments about the reading that I do. Hmm. So A is, I'm absolutely certain of this. Uh, I might even argue with God about it, okay? I call that the Peter principle. <laughs> sometimes Peter argued with God. Okay. Uh, B is, um, I know there's a disagreement, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. 
Um, C is if we get to heaven and I find out you're right, I won't be too terribly surprised. And D is let's both be honest and flip a coin. Neither of us knows. Hmm. And so it's a spectrum across which you you have your judgments. And part of the value of that is if you'll rate your decision making as you're thinking about different doctrines, A, B, C, and D across that spectrum, you'll know how hard and how tenaciously to hold on to what's going uh, to what's going on about the judgments you make, because in several situations, if you change your view about a particular reading of a text, uh, uh, you might also change your overall view. And having some sense of how to how to um, discern about that is an important part of the interpretation process. I tell students who come to seminary, one of the values of your education is it not only teaches you what to believe and expose you to content, but it also exposes you to the process and judgments that you make about that content and becoming discerning about that. And really hermeneutics uh, is part of that conversation in a major way. Would it be fair to say that our hermeneutic sets the trajectory of where we're going to go in those, in your framework, maybe those middle two columns, especially, that whatever hermeneutic we hold on to, whether that's the literal, grammatical, historical, redemptive, historical, or or whatever, um, that'll kind of set a trajectory of where we're going to land as far as eschatology and those things are concerned? Yeah, and then there's a whole issue of, oh, and we discussed this in the chapter of pre-understandings and that kind of thing, kind right. of how I'm calibrated to read, okay? And and usually people don't mess with their presuppositions, okay? It's only if there's a certain amount of built-up pressure, they'll take a hard look at their presuppositions. And that inclines them to read the text in a certain way. Being self-aware about what those are and what the basis for them is, because some people say, well, they're presuppositions, so I shouldn't question them or ask questions about them. No, they're actually part of the grid and the lens that you're using to read. You actually need to be very aware of what those are yeah. and what formulates your you, that that's your approach to the question. Uh, being open to the possibility that you might not be right, because one of the things that we certainly emphasize about hermeneutics is, is that um, none of us is omniscient, okay? I don't think that, that might be the one thing we can agree on in 30 minutes that we're together. <laughs> if none of us is omniscient, that means I might have blind spots. Hmm. And there might be things that I need to learn and read and see. And conversations with people who think differently than I do may help me see the where the, those spots lie. Now, when it comes to the historical aspect of our interpretation of Scripture, you've used an interesting illustration to stress the importance of genuine historicity. Uh, you've talked about Genesis 3.15, where you've got um, the promised seed uh, being issued there as, as God is talking to Adam and to Eve and to the serpent. And many people point to Genesis 3.15 and call it the first gospel or the proto-evangelium. And you say that this interpretation, of course, does come out over the course of the text. I think all Christians would agree with that, but it's too specific for the original audience of Genesis. And instead, you say that the passage simply pointed to the introduction of chaos and to the creation as a result of sin, and that nature would now be in conflict with man. And further, you wrote, and this is, of course, going back to the, those two chapters in progressive dispensationalism, you said that though the New Testament develops Old Testament teaching as divine history moves on, one should not lose the teaching of the old in the process. So historical sensitivity serves as an important potential backdrop for interpretation, but the central pieces of the portrait come from the text. Can you give us some more of your thoughts on those points? 
Well, this is what causes um, progressive revelation to be progressive revelation, because what you're doing is you're laying groundwork. God, of course, in putting the scripture together, knew how the story would unfold and how he would tell it. Um, but he did it. He did it in a process and he did it gradually. There's also another principle that's a part of this is what I call the refractory principle of the scripture, which is lighter texts on given themes can refract back on earlier texts and open up something that may have been initially implicit and make it more explicit mm -hmm. because I have more pieces of the puzzle to work with. Hmm. And so I think sometimes we underestimate how our reading as Christians in light of the whole of scripture oftentimes has this refractory element in it, which makes us insensitive to the original setting and the limitations of that setting when the text was originally given. And of course, the earlier you are in the Bible, the more limitation there is in terms of what that material actually is. And I think it opens up a depth for scripture to be aware that I've got this initial historical layer that's uh, uh, the message and the setting, and then the layer that emerges because I have this book placed in a larger canon with the theme elaborated in other texts that help me to see what's going on in the totality of biblical revelation about it. Now, that I was just a fire hose of information that I just <laughs> gave you, uh, so I'm hoping I didn't douse you too much, uh, but baptism sometimes is a good thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it, one thing we have to be careful of, because I think we all, that refractory principle, if you're a Christian, you've read the New Testament, and you go back and you're seeing things in the Old Testament, I think subconsciously we all practice that that principle. But there's obviously a line that can be crossed where you start changing the meaning of what's in there in the Old Testament. How do we know when we cross that line from expanding on something that was initially offered to us as a seed that grows uh, to now where we're actually swapping out seeds and changing it and giving it a meaning that it never initially had? Yeah, this is one of the challenges, I think, because, of the, you know, uh, the potential of making associations with Scripture is actually rather rich because words go in all kinds of directions. Uh, you know, a lot of interpretation I find myself interacting with when I'm doing a Bible study is someone will say, well, in this passage it says this, and they've got the, you've got the same word that you're looking at in the passage you're talking about. They make an association or a connection. And I tend to be, for lack of a better description, somewhat of a minimalist in that regard as to whether that's in the author's head in doing that, even in some cases, whether it's in God's head in doing it. And I'm looking for confirmation explicitly elsewhere that that's the association that should be made or something like that, as opposed to simply saying, well, I can make this association, so it must be. I just think it's, you have to be very, very careful. As long as you're tracing the major themes and particularly themes that get reaffirmed, sometimes explicitly rather than implicitly, et cetera, then you might be right to make that connection. But my, te my tendency is to hesitate to make connections unless the connection uh, really um, has some type of um, elaborate support around it. The air on the side of caution principle. <laughs> yes, exactly right. Yeah. Now, in, in preparation for this series, we've read several reform takes on hermeneutics so that we're able to critique more reform views based on original sources. And Goldsworthy, Graham Goldsworthy is one of the guys we've been reading, and he's written that there's a fundamental error in understanding the revelation of God chronologically in the Old Testament. So he's kind of pushing back against the view that we would, the three of us would be more apt to take. 
And he said, and this is a quote from one of his books, he said, it might be argued that a chronological methodology was all the biblical characters and authors themselves had, and it should therefore be good enough for us. This ignores the fact that the gospel event was not anticipated in the form it took. The prophetic revelation was undoubtedly revealing the gospel events that should therefore have been recognizable on the basis of the Old Testament, hence the rebuke Jesus gave to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. However, the fulfillment of the prophetic expectations involved further revelation. The manner of the coming of the kingdom, which the Jews and disciples expected, required radical modification in the light of the person and work of Jesus. So what's, what's your response to a more reformed view of this saying, well, look, you can't just stick to the progressive revelation thing. You have to import some of that New Testament theology back in to fully understand. I actually don't have a problem with that if the refraction is actually consistent with what it is that was originally revealed. My complaint against the reformed tradition is is that that refraction often ends up canceling out something that seems to be pretty transparent in the original utterance. Hmm. And so um, so what I want to do is I want to say, I've got the original utterance and I've got God committed to that, but that may not be all God is committed to in giving me that peace. So rather than, rather than forcing a choice of an either or, it's got to be either this or that. Let's take Israel for an example. You know, the people of God expands to all people, and so the church has now become the new Israel, so I can wash out the original historical Israel in the process. I'm going, that's not how I'm going to do that. I'm comfortable in expanding the idea that there are people who are participating in the promises who um, who wouldn't been described by this term in the Old Testament, although the Old Testament did hold open the possibility that through the people of Israel, all the world would be blessed, so there's a way to get there. Uh, but in making that move in that addition, which I think connects explicitly to something that's implicit in the Old Testament, I'm not canceling out what's explicit in the Old Testament by making that move. The moment I make that move, I think I've made a move that's illegitimate. Hmm. Now, regarding the harmonization of Scripture, you wrote, and again, this is another quote from Progressive Dispensationalism, if we're not careful, we can read a text in a way that dilutes another text message. I think this is kind of what you're, you're getting to uh, with what you just said. But sometimes what happens is that an early text is regarded as so clear that a later text simply is read in its terms. But this can flatten out meaning so that the progression of the story is lost. Now, sometimes the Reformed folks might cheer you on and say, okay, yeah, that's, that's great. You know, we need to see this adjustment in, in, in how we understand those original texts. But how do we, how does this apply to the major biblical things like, say, the kingdom of God? And where do we you stop short of agreeing with our brothers who have embraced a full covenant theology? Well, again, I, I, think, I, I, think what, I think what the eschatological debate has generally done is forced us to make choices. So let me give you an example. The Olivet Discourse, is that about AD 70 or is that about the second coming? And it gets framed that way. Is it a short-term text or is it a long-term text? Well, the actual answer is it's both, okay? And in some cases, one event is intended to mirror the other. So it's not only both, but they're not always distinguishable because what is said about one can also be said about the other at the same time. And so... And so um, I use this as an example all the time. People who read the Olivet Discourse through the eyes of Matthew tend to be futuristic in the way they read the Olivet Discourse. People who put the emphasis on the version in the Gospel of Luke 
tend to be short-term in their Mm. emphasis on the Olivet Discourse. And then they force you to choose between the two. (laughs) So I get my hairline by pulling out my hair and going, a plague on both those houses, let's think about this, (laughs) okay? And what I wanna say is this is a both and, and each writer has chosen which half of the pattern to emphasize. And, And actually what it does is it opens up the totality of the handling of the text because it allows each author to speak for himself with his own emphasis. And when you put it all together, it's all there. Okay, mm-hmm. so I don't I don't have to so much choose quite so much between the reformed or the dispensational because they both have elements that they're bringing to the conversation that we need to recognize. And then the question is, and this is actually the better discussion, how do I calibrate those features? Mm-hmm. How do I recognize that they're both there? And then what's the relationship between them? And I think that is a healthier putting together of the package, whether you talk about how harmonization or you talk about making coherence out of it, uh, bringing it to some type of unity, however you want to express that, that's a much better way to do it. So I find sometimes I find we create our problems because we create an either or conversation out of something that's actually a both and. Amen. I this is one of the main reasons I was drawn to progressive dispensationalism, the both and the already not yet the inaugurated, but not fulfilled. I see it everywhere in scripture. I love it. I thank you for that. answer. It's our salvation. I mean, that's it. Jeremy, are you saved? Absolutely. If I asked your wife, if God's done with you yet, (laughs) she's probably going to say, I sure hope not. (laughs) That's exactly right. That's it. Now I do have a question about that because you know, in the Old Testament, you know, there's the prophecy in Daniel, right, that speaks of the abomination of desolation. And I think most Bible interpreters don't see a problem of seeing the both the near and the far fulfillment that is carried out throughout history there with Antiochus Epiphanes and then with the Great Tribulation. Why is it that— and Maybe that... even with Titus. Right, yeah. So how yeah. is it that that principle seems to be so readily recognized and received when viewing— that historical events of uh, Daniel and what he has described versus coming into the Gospels and seeing the prophecies that Jesus laid forth? Uh, that's a good question, and I'm not sure um, what the explanation for it is other than we have our systems that we're trying to defend, and this is where pre-understanding <laughs> comes in. And so if I have a system that I'm trying to defend and I, and I read something that tweaks at that system. I actually discussed this in the chapter, that the real test of a good hermeneutic is what you do when you read a passage and it doesn't engender the response that you anticipated. And you're you're left with, what do you do with that? I can either, okay, I'm gonna maintain my system and explain it, or I might ask this question, is there something that I'm missing that I need to incorporate into my system that I currently don't have? People are slow to ask the question in the second way, okay? They tend to say, I've got my system, so I'm going to work hard to explain this the best that I can and work accordingly. Hmm. And, and so they're slow. They're slow to open up the possibility. So if there's something really big at stake in what it is that I'm reading, I'm going to hesitate to go there. Hmm. Now, did you, you and Craig Blazing, did you experience that particular point as you were developing this version, I guess you could call it a version of dispensationalism, especially there, 
you being so closely connected at Dallas Seminary and you had so many revised and even classical dispensationalists there, were you experiencing pushback because of that pre-understanding commitment that well, other no people had? that we got pushback for what we wrote. I mean, that, 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 was, that, that came with the territory. Um, but, you know, the reason we were doing it is because there were, there were series of passages that I think the, the classic and the revised had trouble explaining and, and without, without doing what, in my judgment, uh, was a, making a contortion out of the passage. Hmm. And so, I, so we began asking ourselves, is there a way to take these pieces that, that our tradition has struggled to explain and put them together and align them in such a way that one, you're not doing, you're not contorting these passages. You're actually allowing them to contribute to the portrait. Uh, but at the same time, and at the same time asking, and where does that leave us? And so what we ended up with was, well, we're still left with a, with a future for Israel and Israel having a role in the program of God. That seems to be clear, but you can do it this way. Um, and in doing it this way, some of the passages that give us problems, for example, a classic example early on is, you know, does Hebrews teach that the new covenant is applicable mm. today in the church outside of uh, Israel and, and Judah? To which my answer is, every time I take communion, I think so. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. You're exactly right. And, and, and so, you know, and, and so how do I explain that rather than saying, well, it's kind of an indirect application of something that's going to really happen later? No, 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 no. We are full participant. We are participating in an initial fulfillment of something that certainly has more coming. Okay, I don't want to deny that part of it. Yeah. And certainly will include people to whom were the original address was given. I don't want to deny that part of it, mm -hmm. but I don't want to exclude what Hebrews is saying either. Good. Yeah, The again, the already not yet theme of progressive dispensationalism is what first attracted me to the whole framework, because it I, again, I just see it all over Scripture, and it's a, a paradox that I think <laughs> we have to call it that from a creaturely perspective, because God's mind is so far above our mind, and the story that He's weaving together is so beyond us that all we can do is say, there's there's paradox going on here, and it's beautiful, and it's uh, something that only God himself could weave together. And it's all already for him. I mean, yeah, that's he, exactly got, right. he doesn't go through a process. He, he knows where it's going, what's it about, how real it is, all that. See, we're trapped in time. God transcends time. Sometimes yeah. I think we should, most, many of our theological dilemmas fail to recognize that distinction between God and us. And, well, I don't know. I'll say this comment and then we'll move on. I think okay. this is why so many classical dispensationalists who become ultra dispensationalists also become open theists. Uh, but I'll leave that there. Um, you've written uh, in the book again that this understanding of the already not yet or the inaugurated but not fulfilled links the plan of God to into a unified whole. And it allows one to see both continuity and discontinuity in the outworking of God's promises. So here's my really wordy question based on that. How does this paradigm guard against the more primitive forms of dispensationalism that are guilty of an unbiblical emphasis on discontinuity, while also guarding against a full-on reform view of the scriptures that removes biblical discontinuity for the sake of their own desired theological continuity? Because what it does is it removes this either-or choice that we've inserted into eschatology 
by recognizing that in a process and, and thinking about uh, eschatology and salvation, et cetera, is not just being about a moment, but being about a process, it actually works to describe what that process mm. is and what the elements of it are. It, would you say there's an honesty element with the hermeneutic that leads you there? I mean, I, I mean, I guess we would all say that about, well, we're, we're all in our theological positions because we're just being honest with the text, but I, I don't know. How, how would you answer that type of question? Well, what I'm saying is, is that there were certain texts that were contorted in, in, in the older models that ended up being contorted in such a way that you sit there and you say, that doesn't work. Let me get another example. Sermon on the Mount is a classic example. Okay, this, you know, in classic dispensationalism, this was either seen to be about the tribulation or the millennial period, it's a legal ethic, etc. But that runs into a real problem in the end of the book of Matthew, when Jesus says to, to in giving the Great Commission, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you, and Matthew's built around five discourses. So I'm not supposed to obey that first discourse, that discourse isn't really for me, it's for someone else thousands of years removed i don't mm. think so i actually and it's the core ethic of what jesus is teaching about how the law is driving us to reflect on who we are from our heart okay that's the core application okay and that's just that's not, i'm not putting that on i'm you know i'm not at a stop sign saying red light until you get to the millennium okay <laughs> uh, this is this is how i'm supposed to live and so, um, so I think that's a really, really important uh, principle and thing about. So, so rather than contorting myself by limiting my definition, this is an, another important feature. By limiting my definition to how that term was originally used and saying that's all it can mean, rather than saying no, this this is an initial expression of this theme and idea, but additional expressions of this theme and idea can open up the direction in which it can go. That's the progress of revelation. That's why we called it progressive dispensationalism, mm -hmm. because the progress is rooted in the progress of revelation and recognizing how that works. Thus, thus you can begin to, it begins to open up how you can get these tensions, because that's what they also are, these tensions in your theology that say, yeah, my salvation is already but it's not yet. I've experienced some of what God has offered, but I'm sure glad there's a lot more coming down the line. Yeah. Amen. Amen. In the midst of these, these theological and, and hermeneutical wrestlings and things, sometimes I find when reading some of the, uh, some of these reform guys like Graham uh, Goldsworthy as was mentioned earlier, there's some critiques that come in regarding where do we find the source of meaning in a text? And I don't know, do you just see a distinction between finding the source of meaning in the authorial intent versus the original audience's understanding? Do you see a distinction there and how that plays out in our understanding of the text? Well, I, I, I'm, I think we're after what the author tried to communicate, but unfortunately, all that we have in understanding what the author intended to communicate are the words he puts on the page. So, um, and, and grappling with the context uh, of the, that in which those words function. So I think philosophically, you've got to say your intended interpretation is to understand what the original author was trying to say. And then of course, in scripture, you got two authors, you've got the human author and you got the divine author. Right. So you've got both a historical dimension and to some degree, also you have a canonical dimension that you're wrestling with because of the injection of the divine author. 
But I do that by wrestling with the words that are on the page. So this choice between text and author is a little bit artificial uh, because what you're construing is what the author is doing because of the words he put on the page. So I can't separate the mind and expression from the author from the expression that he actually undertook in putting those words on the page. Um, so I don't like the choice between text and author because the author generated that text. And I'm trying to understand what he's doing by doing that. Now, audience perception, I'm less interested in unless we're thinking about application and contextualization. Um, then that's where that feature comes in because obviously I'm gonna apply a text in a particular context and how that, how my context relates to an earlier context makes a big difference. So for example, in Ephesians six, we're talking about slaves and masters. I just can't port that into the employee employer relationship. Yep. Yep. Okay, it's not the same context. You're right. But I'm gonna apply it. I'm probably gonna apply it in that kind of a context. Yep. I've gotta recognize what's similar and different about those two contexts before I engage in the application. Amen. He's the man. Yeah. <laughs> That's, I, really, we wish we could talk with you all day about these things. <laughs> I don't know if our listeners would listen all day, but we would love to talk with you all day. <laughs> yeah. yeah, do you have any hot tips for how we can make hermeneutics exciting? Because <laughs> that's one thing we're struggling with. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I don't know. Until we meet Mr. Hermeneutic, I don't know what we do. <laughs> Well, we are very appreciative of you joining us today, and we thank you so much. Uh, my pleasure.